Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and Corridor Aesthetics.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, let's start by having me mention one word and see what images and events pop into your mind. Here's your word. Conspiracy. What comes to mind for you? A fake moon landing? Wild ideas about Elvis being still alive, perhaps? Or Bigfoot? What about in the political arena? The assassination of JFK, of course, has to come to mind. What about the so-called Red Scare of the 20th century? Now, conspiracy theories and their believers abound, and they have throughout U.S. history, going way back to colonial times. So in today, in the 21st century, we know misinformation, disinformation, unfounded conspiracies have become more and more intractable. And the increased fragmentation of our news in our digital era makes some solutions there hard to come by. This hour, we want to really dig into the psychology behind conspiracy theories throughout history, this radicalization, the moral panics, and examine just how dangerous a lie can become once it spreads like wildfire. Joining us, we like to call them the two Tims. Tim Walsh is a presidential historian. We've had him, and we love to have him on our airwaves as often as possible. Director Emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch. Tim Walsh, welcome back to our studio. Nice to see your face. Nice to see you, Ben. Tim Naftali is with us, joining us from New York, I assume, presidential historian, founding director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. He's an associate professor of history and public policy at New York University. Tim Naftali, New York, Tim, as we refer to you. <laughs> Welcome back. Thank you, Ben. Actually, today I'm, I'm, I'm uh, speaking from the FDR Presidential Library. Where is that located? That's in Hyde Park, New York. Very good. Well, glad to have you with us. Glad to have our listeners with us. What's your question about conspiracy theories? There's so many. We'll touch on many this hour. Maybe there's one you'd like to bring up. Have a question about a specific conspiracy theory in U.S. history. 1-866-780-9100. 1-866-780-9100. Or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, Tim Walsh, you're going to be covering more of the early history of conspiracy theories in U.S. history. And Tim Naftali, uh, we're going to lean on you as we get into the 20th century and into the present time a little bit more. Tim Walsh, before we travel back in time, uh, let's make sure we know what some of the traits are, characteristics that we'll find in all the conspiracy theories that we explore this hour. It is true, Ben, that, that uh, conspiracies are, are a, a long-standing American tradition, and they do have commonalities. They they tend to be uh, a concern about secret plans to deprive people of their rights, deprive innocent people of, of their rights or their property. There's a, a, a general tension between uh, certain groups that uh, make one group suspicious of the other and that there's a, a, a plot or a, an effort to take away something that people are scheming uh, to, to take that away. And it often happens in periods of crisis. So uh, during the revolutionary period, for example, or even in the, the late uh, 17th century in Salem, uh, Massachusetts, where you had tension between social classes. Uh, but then it goes up 
through the 19th century and on, uh, there's friction between people who have different religions often. There was an apprehension, for example, about Catholics or Mormons. Uh, social classes, uh, we're concerned about all these immigrants coming in. Could they be trusted? Would they be loyal Americans? So that sort of sense of, of tension and frustration and, and concern. Um, and, and in most cases with, with conspiracies, emotion tends to trump reason. Mm. People are making decisions based on, on their fears or, or the, their concerns uh, without really uh, gathering facts. Yeah, and as we have, we know today, you said emotions, people believe what they believe. You can present them with a number of facts that discount their belief. They will most often go on believing. Well, and we'll talk about this, the whole idea of feedback loops or closed kind of silo thinking. Well, think back even to the 18th century where people listened and depended upon the, the, the minister in their pulpit who told them kind of what to believe. And if that person happened to have a prejudicial view or a conspiratorial view, often that meant the rest of the congregation did. So you have this closed loop without any additional information. Mm-hmm. Uh, take us back to the early days even before the founding of our country, uh, because we mentioned the Salem witch trials. That's one of the best known ones. But there are numerous other examples that we can take from the uh, colonial period or the revolutionary period. What jumps out in your mind? Well, several things. For example, there was really from the beginning of the establishment of the colonies, the English colonies, an apprehension about what uh, the uh, indigenous peoples, the native tribes were doing, what sort of plots they were uh, scheming against uh, these these. New establishments, these colonial uh, towns. And, and so you have within all those colonial towns fear of Native Americans. Uh, in the South, you have almost from 1619 on, but certainly through the 18th and 19th centuries, a real t- uh, uh, apprehension about slave rebellion and slave revolt, uh, the, the whole question of whether or not there would be an uprising that could lead to, to that uh, kind of a tension. It's also true in the 18th century, uh, as the colonial governments evolved in, in those colonies, there was tension between what was going on in Parliament and, and what was going on in the colonies. And the colonists were apprehensive that the their rights uh, and liberties were going to be deprived of them. And in fact, of course, it leads to our independence. One of the most notable is the Quebec Act. Uh, this was the result of the uh, the war, French and Indian War in the 1750s uh, and 60s, and it was really an effort by Parliament to reestablish an order for the operation of Canada, which in effect had been predominantly French, and allowing the French to practice their Catholic religion. Well, rumors spread into the colonies that Parliament was going to force all of the colonists to convert to Catholicism. And so you have tension within colonies that that spread, again, by ministers uh, throughout that, that time period. So right up through uh, the establishment of our country, we were dealing with, uh, with lots and lots of of, of various conspiracies, people taking away their rights. And again, it was in this loop. It was often pulpits, people using pamphlets, uh, word of mouth and that sort of thing. So how the information was spread, who was spreading it, were just as important as, as the ideas themselves. Often a kernel of truth, but then it got way out of control. Mm-hmm. Tim Naftali, let me go to you in, in New York and ask you about, well, some of your beginning thoughts on on these types of unfounded conspiracies early in our history and as we sort of trace our way into more modern times? Well, one, um, well, as as ever, Tim has laid the foundation for us to, 
have a great conversation. Um, feedback loops, uh, um, uh, people in your community you respect. Um, these are all important uh, building blocks to understand uh, how conspiracy theories can develop. Um, one uh, element of the story, I think, also is that uh, reality um, is uh, is confusing. It's complicated. Um, and at the heart of many conspiracy theories is a simple explanation, uh, usually a single factor explanation for a complex reality and a complex outcome. Uh, also, uh, a single um, simple uh, culprit is looked for if a particular, uh, particularly shocking event has happened, an assassination or an attack, um, be because it was unexpected, because the uh, citizen didn't expect it, he or she might look for a simple explanation for why it happened. Um, also, um, it isn't simply group dynamics that produce uh, or have produced conspiracies. It's it's um, or or cultural or ethnic group dynamics. It's also a a, a question of power. Um, Americans. Um, while revering the founding fathers, often had real skepticism about elites. And some American uh, conspiracy theories had to do with a sense that there was this concentration of power, whether the concentration was in trusts or in banks, and that these concentrated uh, power centers were working against the interests of the people. Um, so you have sort of many different forms of a conspiracy, but they do share similar characteristics. And, and one is a sort of a simple explanation for a complex reality. Another is sort of a, trying to find blame, trying to be able to blame them, an other, mm. an, another group uh, for the difficulties of, of your reality. Those you can, you can see. Um, the, one of the things I hope that, that um, Tim and I will discuss is whether uh, conspiracy theories wax and wane in American history. In other words, are there periods where they're way more pronounced? One would argue that we're in one right now. And periods when they're uh, less uh, um, dominant in popular culture. And why is that? So we might talk about that as we, as we go through some of the more significant um, episodes of conspiracy thinking in our history. Mm -hmm. Let's um, let, let's uh, concentrate on, go back to the 19th century, if we could, Tim, Tim Walsh, and, and talk us, uh, note some of the, in the 1800s, some of the notable conspiracy theories people, Americans, would have lived through. Well, absolutely, Ben. And, and, and Tim, by the way, is absolutely right when we talk about uh, that, that it's more than just groups coming to a consensus of, of, of a concern, that often it's pushed on by specific individuals. Uh, with an agenda. With, so. with an agenda. Take, for example, a preacher by the name of Lyman Beecher, who was uh, the father of Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of, of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, Beecher was a, a virulent anti-Catholic, and he began to spread a notion that the Catholic Church was had its design and its eyes on taking over the country, uh, the United States, which was a good Protestant country at the time. And in the 1820s and 30s, he would point to evidence of all these Irish and German Catholics who were coming in. And then he came up with the idea that, and published it in a pamphlet called A Plea for the West, that the Pope was going to move the Vatican to St. Louis 
Louis, and he had a Jesuit army that was going to take over. So you get that sense of fear, but it gave Beecher great uh, power uh, because of that focus. An additional period of fear in the 19th century, of course, was also the, the, the fear of slave revolts. Nat Turner and Denmark Vesey, there was uh, tension within uh, the, the, the uh, slave community. And there were frictions and frustrations, but it was nowhere near the threat that the fear had elevated it to. So as as Tim has suggested, periods wax and wane, that period from 1820 to 1860, a period where there's uh, uh, abolitionism uh, as well as anti-immigrant feelings, there was the evolution of, of religion, the Mormon religion, Joseph Smith evolved and, and mm-hmm. began to move west. And in fact, people were apprehensive about, about uh, uh, Smith and, and his, his, his groups, what were their intentions. And in fact, Smith himself was killed, I think, obviously because of ignorance in the process. So you have, particularly in that period uh, before the Civil War, real tension, and in fact, it's pushed on by conspiracies. Go ahead. Sorry, Dan. I just want to dig down a little bit on this waxing and waning, because we definitely feel uh, that it is has grown in recent years. What makes, uh, Tim Nafali, what makes a, a soil fertile in history? And, and uh, tell us about the, the, the past of, uh, that, that, that come to mind for you, past instances. When are we more open to conspiracy theories that are baseless? Thank you, Ben. Um, well, when you have a period of rapid social change, um, whether that change is caused by immigration, as Tim mentioned, uh, different new groups of, 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 uh, of different religions. Um, uh, when you have um, a, uh, a shock to an established system, uh, as, for example, as abolitionism began to challenge the structure of white supremacy and segregation and slavery in the South, um, uh, within the South, you saw, uh, saw this gave rise to fear that there would be change, that the that there you know there, the system of slavery might might disappear. Um, um, we've had political in the 19th century. There were American political parties that were actually um, uh, founded on a conspiracy theory. There was an anti-Masonic party. Mm. Um, indeed, the former president, I believe, Millard Fillmore, was the um, national candidate. Uh, this was after uh, his time in office. Um, it was, in, was the was the was the national candidate, the presidential candidate for the anti Masonic um, uh, party, and that was founded. Its organizing principle was a conspiracy theory about Masons. Hmm. Um, uh, the Greenback Party. Well, it was was founded on a set of ideas about soft money, about printing more money, about. Um, but it, but it also was founded in a set of assumptions about uh, banks and uh, the sort of the the uh, the heinous objectives of banks. It, arguably, uh, Andrew Jackson, whose political career was not was not founded on a conspiracy, uh, it was founded on his desire to be president. <laughs> but uh, the the uh, um, imagery that he used and some of his arguments about the elites. Um, uh, uh, relied on an assumption about the bank, in this case, the uh, the Bank of America uh, of the United States, and the sense that you had sort of this octopus of power, 
coming from the bank. So in the 19th century, um, conspiracies were useful tools um, to get people, um, those who were allowed to vote, to get people to, to the polls. Mm-hmm. So that the it, it wasn't simply fringe groups that were using conspiracy. There were actually major players in American politics um, who um, thought and uh, who appealed to voters uh, using the language of conspiracy in the 19th century. If you just joined us, uh, historians Tim Naftali joining us from New York, Tim Walsh in our Iowa City studio. Uh, uh, we're looking at conspiracy theories, uh, baseless conspiracy theories uh, throughout U.S. history, and then we're going to tie them into the present time to get a little context to why we have, uh, we're so open to mis and disinformation uh, these days, how conspiracy theories th- spread um, and uh, what a danger they can be. And who spreads them and why? one 780 9100 1-866-780-9100. In the five minutes before we have to take a break, let's jump, uh, put our feet into the 20th century and go to a, a, a conspiracy theory, um, a baseless conspiracy that uh, affected the lives of people perhaps even listening right now will have a living memory of the so-called Red Scare. Uh, Tim Walsh, walk us through the basics of what happened in the the middle of the 20th century. Well, in in effect, what we're talking about here, because we're going to listen, I think, to some audio from uh, the McCarthy hearings, was the fear after World War II that the Communist Party of the United States, but also the kind of the Soviet Union, was trying to steal our atomic secrets uh, and that there there were spies and traitors among us. McCarthy feasted on this making uh, undocumented accusations of, of untold numbers of, of spies in the State Department. Uh, and, and eventually he got caught up, of course. He had used uh, the, the medium of newspapers and radio very effectively, but he got caught up in a way when, in fact, uh, the hearings uh, in, in the 1950s, early televised hearings, uh, ca- caught him in, in you know, using lies and other misinformation. But I also want to make harken back to the fact that Red Scare is a term we often use for a period of, uh, of insurrection in, in the uh, years immediately after uh, the uh, First World War, where mm. we were suspicious again of the evolution of the Communist Party in the, uh, the early days of the Soviet Union. And uh, Mitchell Palmer, the attorney general, uh, conducted red raids, literally trying to root out all of these communists and, and others. So as, as Tim has mentioned, we, we look for these power sources and we look to root them out. And in fact, uh, powerful and in some cases uh, unscrupulous people use that information to gain personal power. So we see it in, in various people throughout the 20th century. Let's go to the, uh, some archive audio from the mid-1950s. Uh, Joseph Welch served as the chief counsel for the U.S. Army while it was under the investigation for— um, while it was under investigation for communist activities by Senator Joe McCarthy. Uh, the, his Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, uh, known as the Army McCarthy Hearings. Now, Welch's confrontation with McCarthy during the hearings seen as a turning point. That's what we want to listen to right here, an excerpt from that turning point, uh, in this instance taken from the 2020 PBS documentary, McCarthy. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. Let's, 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 You've let's, done enough. 
Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? Have you no sense of decency? Those are words that uh, we remember. Tim Naftali, co- comment on that, because it seems to me, not having lived through this time, that it's perhaps atypical for a conspiracy to be ended this way by being called out. I mean, people would—I <laughs> think many people listening would wish that unfounded conspiracies today could be called out and stopped in a similar fashion. Or is, well, is, yeah. In, in 1964, of course, ten years later, um, during the um, during the '64 campaign, presidential campaign, um, Barry Goldwater, who was the Republican nominee, um, uh, had the support of the John Birch Society, which was a far right group uh, that um, feasted on conspiracies about the role of communists in American society, and also included. In you know um, among their uh, favorite conspiracies, some vicious anti-Semitic conspiracies, particularly the one regarding um, uh, the fact that, that there was a secret cabal of Jews that directed international finance. Um, that by the way, that conspiracy theory was created by the Russian intelligence service, the Okhrana, in the 19th century as a way of encouraging. Uh, Russians to kill Jews in the pogroms. Mm. The Russian government sponsored this, created it out of Holkov. Anyway, this theory, which uh, had adherents in the United States, among whom were Henry Ford of the Ford Company, this theory uh, was still, uh, it wasn't popular, but it, it, it was shared by some members of, um, who were supporting Barry Goldwater. A bipartisan group in the U.S. Senate had hearings about this libelous conspiracy theory to kill it. Imagine if we had a bipartisan uh, hearing to kill the QAnon theory. They did in 1964 about um, the Zionist conspiracy uh, that the uh, Russian um, uh, state, not the Soviets, this is the Russian state that had created in the 19th century. So we have actually had in our history, sadly not in our recent history, bipartisan efforts to put to bed these vicious, poisonous conspiracies that tear us apart. Okay, we have to take a break. We'll be back with the two Tims, Tim Naftali from New York, Tim Waltz, our two presidential historians talking about conspiracy theories, uh, tying in all these kinds of political, non-political things. We're focusing on the political arena in this case, but, you know, all kinds of conspiracies. It's an American tradition, as it turns out, and we'll discuss it more when we come back. Uh, ben Kiefer with historians Tim Walsh and Tim Naftali. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Vehicle donations are a powerful way to fuel the programming you love on IPR. If you've got a clunker or a classic that you've been considering parting ways with, visit IPR.org vehicle to learn more. 
Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Digging this hour into the psychology behind conspiracy theories, the sociology, you could say, as well, throughout U.S. history and examining how dangerous uh, lies can be once uh, they spread, why they're th- uh, spread, uh, what parts of history lend themselves to the spread of uh, conspiracy theories. And of course, because we live in a time of extreme misinformation and disinformation, what do these past instances in history have to do with our own times? Joining us, Tim Naftali, presidential historian, joining us uh, from the uh, FDR uh, Presidential Library in Hyde Park in New York uh, today. Uh, Tim Walsh is with us in our Iowa City studio. Um, he's the Director Emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. You're invited to join us if you have a particular uh, political conspiracy theory in U.S. history you'd like to ask about, one 780 I-, I wanted to jump to an area that I know Tim Naftali, well, both of you know a great deal about, but I think, uh, Tim Naftali, you're writing a book now about Kennedy. We know Kennedy was shot in 1963 in Dallas when he was part of a motorcade. Uh, Did Lee Harvey Oswald act alone? Was there a second gunman on the grassy knoll? Um, These questions have given rise to a, a vast arena of conspiracy theories, uh, endless speculation, hundreds of books, articles, and films. Uh, let's listen back to some archive audio. Uh, in November of 63, just a couple of days after Lee Harvey Oswald was accused of the assassination of President then-President Kennedy, Jack Ruby shot Oswald, killing him. Uh, this is from the Today Show of that time, NBC Washington correspondent uh, Martin Nagronsky discussing the murder here. Let's listen. In the basement of the courthouse, policemen, reporters, and cameramen were waiting for Oswald to come down an elevator there to the right to be transferred to another jail. A man named Ruby was waiting, too. The scene began with the familiar routine of news coverage of public events. The officers come down. There goes Ruby toward Oswald. He's firing. Oswald slumps to the floor. And as he does, the police officers beside him leap upon Ruby, as we now know him to be, after the confusion had sorted itself out, throw him to the ground. Tim Naftali, tell us, sort out a fact from fiction here. It's hard, you know, after this passage of time, why we need to say fact and fiction here. Is there any doubt what happened uh, in this assassination? Well, there's there's no doubt in my mind uh, that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone wolf. He was a lone assassin. Assassin, um, despite the fact that uh, he he would tell the Dallas police uh, that he was a patsy. Um, uh, there there is there is no plausible conspiratorial explanation for his actions. I say that because there are a lot of very interesting conspiracies that have been floated: um, the mafia, Cubans, the Soviets some sort of uh, central elite national security group. Um, but if you, if you walk down the story of Lee Harvey Oswald and John F. Kennedy and you see how these two men's paths sadly crossed in Dallas, you, you, not one of those theories explains mm-hmm. why the then, contingencies, the accidents. Why then, Tim Naftali, is this conspiracy theory so long-lived and so strong even to the present day? 
Well, and it, it's true that it's strong. In fact, I don't believe, I haven't looked at a, a recent survey, but certainly up to the middle 2010s, most Americans from 1963 on never accepted the argument that Lee Harvey Oswald did it alone. So um, there's never been a consensus around what would be the Warren Commission report's uh, conclusion in 1964. Well, part of it is the episode that you uh, that we just listened to. The fact that the president's assassin is killed in the parking lot of the Dallas police raised so many red flags for Americans. Was this an effort to hush him? Was this an effort to hush up Lee Harvey Oswald? Um, so that that whole that incident alone, um, I think, deepened the 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 the, the, the skepticism of most Americans. The the other part is a more complex. Um, explanation, but I think it's really important, which is that in the 20th century, America acquires a national security uh, complex um, as a result of entering World War II and then uh, taking on huge global responsibilities after the end of World War II. The United States decided to have a permanent intelligence community. Uh, this was something that the U.S. had not had, despite being a great power arguably since the end of the 19th century, the United States didn't have one. With intelligence communities, you get secrets. And those secrets are kept from the American people, despite the fact that we're in a democracy. I would argue that you need an intelligence community. But one of the unintended consequences of a national security state is deeper skepticism among, the, among people because they don't know everything their government is doing. So John F. Kennedy was engaged in a in a in a complex relationship with the world, to put it mildly, I am quite convinced uh, that John F. Kennedy uh, and his brother were aware of the CIA's planning uh, uh, to kill Ken uh, Castro. Um, I I recognize there's a debate, and it's it there's no it's not an open and shut case. But I have I've taken spent a long time doing this kind of research, and I will make this argument that they knew. Um, John Kennedy um, did not like the idea of assassination, but he did not was not morally against it. This did not, however, lead to his own assassination. However, when the American people in the 1970s, as a result of congressional investigations of the Cold War, discovered that their government was engaged in secret efforts to kill foreign leaders, I think this sharpened the sense among Americans that there was a deeper story to John F. Kennedy's death. So I, I believe part of the reason why the Kennedy uh, assassination has been ripe for conspiracy thinking is that it came at the, at the height of the Cold War. It involved a presidency that was engaged in a lot of secret activity abroad, and it involved the death of a beloved figure who actually has become even more loved in retrospect than he was even at the time. Mm -hmm. From Tim Naftali in New York to uh, historian Tim Walsh in Iowa City. Just to cap on what Tim said, which is, is fantastic in terms of summing up the fact that we have become more conspiratorial as a result of our national security state, not only did they not believe what the Warren Commission reported in, the in 1964, they got out a quick report and it was disregarded, 
But the the whole process went on over and over again in every decade. And the, as far as I recall, I think it was done in the 1990s uh, to force agencies, uh, uh, national security agencies, CIA and so forth, to report, uh, make copies of all the documents that they had related to the Kennedy assassination. And so there's another whole collection at the National Archives related to the Kennedy assassination just from uh, from 1990s. So it goes on and on and on. And in part, as Tim suggests, it's because we have so many secrets and Americans are uneasy about those secrets. What what does the government know about us? And who knows? And of course, as we know, we've had popular television shows that uh, you know build on that whole premise. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. Let's listen to a, a 1995 episode of Unsolved Mysteries. You went to a place I really want to know because... A lot of these conspiracy theories are not political theories, but we are sort of um, um, made to believe or it's become entertainment, hasn't it? Sure. Comment on this after we hear this um, Unsolved Mysteries. It's a clip from Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, These are theories about UFOs and aliens surrounding Area 51. Let's listen. UFOs have become the topics of everyday conversation. Yet a recent poll revealed that nearly half of all Americans now believe that UFOs are real. In the next hour, a new, in-depth look at what may be the most remarkable phenomenon of our age. We'll take you to Area 51, a top-secret military installation tucked away in the remote Nevada desert. Tim Walsh, tie in our entertainment, our conspiracy as entertainment into our political sphere. This was a hugely popular show being hosted by Robert Stack. Some people will remember from the television show The Untouchables. But this revived and rehabilitated his his career, his entertainment career. But again, that, that, that whole eerie music and that question about UFOs and people might disregard that as kind of foolishness, but the government had a, 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 a project blue book, the Air Force, to investigate UFOs and what happened at Roswell and what happened, what, what are they doing in Area 51? But it speaks seriously to that question that Tim raised, uh, that, that we have a national security state, that we have lots of secrets, that Americans want to know what the government knows. Uh, and, and that kind of leads to all kinds of wild theories and conspiracies in the process. So it's become, it's woven its way into our entertainment industry. Folks will remember, uh, of course, X-Files, you know, the truth is out there, mm-hmm. but trust no one. I mean, it's contradictory uh, 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 oxymorons, but, but in effect, it becomes part of our culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can I have... say something about Area 51 very quickly? Yes, Tim, because please. It does involve secrecy and deception. Area 51 was where the CIA tested the U-2 spy plane. The U-2 spy plane was so important to, to eliminating concerns about the size of the Soviet bomber fleet in the 50s. And, of course, the U-2 spy plane is what gave John F. Kennedy the photographs of missiles in Cuba in 1962. In order that the Soviets would not know that the United States was developing a high-altitude spy plane, Americans were not told what was being tested. When Americans saw U-2s, which at that time were not painted black, they were silver, um, many Americans thought they saw a disc. It wasn't a disc, but they saw the silver. 
the U.S. Air Force, in support of the CIA, would meet the people that said they saw these things and then discourage them about what they saw. So there was deception. Now, it wasn't that there was an alien, it, but it was the fact that the U.S. did not want this secret military program or secret intelligence program to be known by, to the American people. So the unintended consequence of the spy plane program was the proliferation of theories about UFOs. Mm-hmm. That's we, why we had these. It was a product of a U.S. program, and it was an outcropping of the development of the national security state. state. And in the 1990s, a show like, like Stack's Unsolved Mysteries actually revived uh, issues of Area 51 that go right back to the 40s, and it becomes a staple of assumptions about what our government has been doing without our knowing. Well, they were right. It was our government doing something we didn't know about, but it wasn't uh, uh, testing uh, an ET. It was testing a high-altitude spy plane. Mm-hmm. Tim Naftali and Tim Walsh are two historians with us this hour. In our final 10 minutes, uh, I mean, while we're on space flight or uh, strange Area 51, we have, of course, the theory. Um, we did, in fact, uh, Americans did land for the first time in the history of humanity on the moon in 1969. Uh, But by the 70s, we have this bizarre conspiracy theory emerging that the moon landing never happened, Tim Walsh. Uh, Why would that take root? Well, people had such a difficult time comprehending the science behind what NASA was doing and that it just seemed unbelievable. And so what you have is somebody with a rich imagination saying that all of this was done in Hollywood on a a soundstage and that they created this. And again, I think it, it builds upon exactly what Tim has been talking about, and that is with the national security state or the whole question of can you trust your government? What is, what is your government telling you, and is it possibly true? And all it takes is somebody with a, a, a pretty good-sized megaphone and, and some paranoia uh, to create a, a sizable community, and it seems to spread like crabgrass in terms of popularity among the American people. In part by because, it's, of course, it's also encouraged on by th- shows like Unsolved Mysteries. Is this a, uh, Tim Natale, is this a uniquely American thing? I know conspiracy theories exist in other countries, of course, but uh, is our society especially open to it uh, when we perhaps compare it to other what, uh, countries? What are your thoughts? It's not uniquely American, uh, but, but uh, uh, because of the, the, the strength of our society, which I believe comes from its diversity— um, not all Americans have that same view of diversity. And uh, in, certainly in the 19th century, cultural differences gave, gave rise to some conspiracy thinking. In the 20th century, because we're a superpower um, and because uh, the field of our secret activity is so much broader than it is in, in most any other democracy, save for arguable, arguably Great Britain, um, that has actually given, I think, uh, given the United States or Americans a little bit more to be concerned about. Um, I would argue one other piece, which we haven't mentioned, mm-hmm. money. People have made money off of conspiracy yeah. theories. Um, book, uh, book publishing companies. Um, also, people selling um, uh, uh, so-called medical. Um, it's really not. It's snake oil. Uh, but people as uh, supplements um, have benefited from conspiracy theories, using conspiracy theories uh, as a platform to sell um, non-medical supplements. So don't forget there's a commercial side 
to conspiracy theories with some very um, amoral people or immoral people have uh, taken advantage of. Uh, Alex Jones is one we could mention there, too. How much damage has he done to the families of those who already lost their yes. uh, young children in, in that uh, mass uh, shooting? Uh, but we also have uh, uh, both of you very, very up on the Watergate era. Sometimes conspiracies are, are real. Uh, the Watergate break-in is a good example of, of a conspiracy that actually happened, Tim Walsh. Uh, absolutely, and and I have to defer to Tim Naftali to was, talk about Watergate because nobody that I know has spent as much time thinking about and exploring and researching uh, the evolution of Watergate as a as a concept, as a theory, and a, as a fact based event. Uh, Tim Naftali, early on, I wonder if after the first news broke of the break in at the Watergate, was there a sense, perhaps for a while, that this is just some unfounded conspiracy? Uh, well, indeed, um, uh, most of the prestige press did not pick up the story. It took uh, two untested journalists named Woodward and Bernstein to keep at it. Uh, they were at the Washington Post at the time. Um, and, and in fact, there, there wasn't a national sense of conspiracy um, just after Watergate. It seemed too absurd to associate with the Nixon White House. Uh, that thinking, of course, would change within a year. Yes, there have been conspiracies, and we have to keep those in mind. Uh, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln was part of a conspiracy to decapitate the entire uh, federal government. Uh, there was certainly Watergate was a conspiracy. Iran-Contra involved a conspiracy during the Reagan administration. So there have been conspiracies, and one of the challenges is to differentiate between real and imagined conspiracies. Mm -hmm. Let's bring it up in the final few minutes to the present time. Uh, in contrast to dire predictions, the 2022 midterm elections, largely a rebuke to the far-right candidates who campaigned on conspiracy theories about the 2020 uh, election being stolen. However, we still have you know dozens of election deniers reelected who serve in our uh, Congress today. Tim Waltz, let me start with you. Tie what we've been talking about in history into the, the current times and our openness to misinformation, how this has been so potently used by those who seek power. Well, it's certainly the case, for example, with the spread of social media and multiple platforms and megaphones for people to build an audience. And the shock uh, that, that draws listeners uh, makes individuals more powerful, uh, and it also brings in money, as Tim suggests. But it also then uh, helps to groom candidates for office who use conspiracy theories to build, in effect, a voter base. And even if that voter base isn't the majority, it gives them a sense of power uh, moving forward, and they become disruptors. It's not as if they necessarily change the election results in the end, but because they begin the whole process of, of trying to litigate a, a change, uh, that, that it, it leads to friction and tension and you know, multiple conspiracies. So that's what you have with election deniers is just disruption. Mm -hmm. Tim Naftali, do you believe that the election deniers uh, who ran for office or perhaps succeeded in, in winning office or retaining office, uh, were they along for the ride, not really believing in these conspiracy theories of um, uh, baseless um, uh, election fraud? We'll see soon in how they act. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to mention that one other source of conspiracy theories um, comes from abroad. Uh, foreign governments uh, have attempted to encourage some conspiracy theories that are helpful to their own cause. Um, 
uh, it, we, we, with the, the Nazis uh, in 1940 uh, were doing what they could uh, to spread misinformation and disinformation about Franklin Roosevelt to encourage the Republicans to nominate an isolationist um, candidate for president. In the end, actually, the Republicans uh, nominated an interventionist. Um, the Russians, the Soviets uh, in the Cold War tried their best to spread disinformation to undermine uh, the uh, our government. Um, the Russians spread disinformation about uh, about uh, the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy. Yeah. Um, though they didn't use the word deep state, um, it was uh, Russian assisted Soviet assistant um, propaganda in the 1960s that pushed the argument that the CIA and the intelligence community had killed John F. Kennedy. I'm not saying that this idea would have spread without Soviet assistance, but the Soviets saw fractures in our society and tried to deepen them where they were useful to them. Of course, the Russians would do this again in 2016. So outside governments have actually tried to play upon conspiracy ideas already um, in the United States, in our political culture, to try to make them uh, stronger. Mm -hmm. In the final minute here, Tim Walsh, what does history tell us about remedies? What can individuals do to ward off uh, baseless conspiracy theories, keep them from spreading? Well, freedom of speech is a, is a precious commodity, and, and the, I would urge everyone not to give in to emotion, but to use ration and critical thinking to to determine the truth of 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 what they're hearing, because I don't think there's ever going to be an end to the number of conspiracy theories and wacky ideas out there. But there can be a, an improvement in the quality of education so that people make a, a, a better assessment of what they're learning and, and hearing. Okay, thank you very much for joining us, presidential historians Tim Walsh and Tim Naftali. Uh, Tim in New York, thank you so much for taking time in your day. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Tim. Good to hear you, Tim. <laughs> Tim Walsh, of course, thank you for coming into our Iowa City studio today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. This December, IPR is heading to the magical Christmas markets in Germany and Austria. Save $400 by signing up before June 11th at IPR.org travel. Don't wait. Tickets are limited. Today's River to River, in fact, this is no conspiracy, <laughs> produced by Caitlin Troutman with help from Natalie Dunlap. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Join us again tomorrow.